turn to um, James chapter 2. We're uh, finishing up our little mini-series within the book of James on favoritism. And uh, it seems like it's a year has passed since we've been a part of that thing. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I shouldn't have done it in the second service. I did it in the first, and it was really bad. Um, so anyway, we're on uh, James chapter 2. And uh, let's read this. We'll read all of verse, verses 1 through 13, although we've covered the first seven verses. And then, um, but it kind of helps reset where we are and what, what we've been talking about here. So it says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you, if you pay attention to the one who wears a fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there, sit down on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As we have gone through James here in chapter 2, there's this word that we've been talking about, and, and it's a big kind of buzzword of our day, justice, social justice. And this word justice is actually embedded in this passage. And it comes from a bigger concept within Hebrew of shalom, God's care, passion for our well-being and for equity. Justice is embedded within this of equity, one's well-being. And, and we were talking about that in the first couple messages, and, and today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through the end of 13 on this passage. And, and this church that James is writing to, actually churches, James is, is the brother of Jesus, most assume, and he's close to Jesus, and now Jesus is gone, and this is what most scholars say is the very first book that we have written of the New Testament. And so as, as he's writing this, he's writing this to young Christians who are trying to figure out what it looks like to walk and live as Christ followers. And the problem is they have this reputation for being filled with discrimination, partiality. And as you read through this, as I read through this, uh, this described me 
a lot back in my late teens and early 20s. And it wasn't because my parents raised me that way. It's just because my heart gravitated towards legalism. And, and what often comes with legalism is the judgmental spirit and the partiality and the finger pointing and the you're less than kind of thoughts. And what broke that was actually at seminary and it was under a pastor who was very loving and passionate enough and strong enough to move into my life and say, you're really messed up and you treat people in poor ways. You say things and you behave in ways and people feel that. Do you know that? I'm like, no, didn't know that. And there's a breaking period in my life of that and part of that was also breaking the whole legalism thing so I finally just said okay I'm done with legalism I'm going the other way and so I grew my hair out like this and uh how about those locks huh yeah those those aren't ever coming back unfortunately um but that to me was like this huge like breaking with the past and uh was no longer going to be that what I was unprepared for was how people within the church would all of a sudden treat me the way I had treated all kinds of other people over the years. I was shocked that six to eight inches of hair all of a sudden would bring these words people would say to me and things and looks, and I'm still the same. It's me. It's Scott. Come on. And is in the church over hair. It's in the church today. You know, part of that whole journey for me was God speaking and saying, Scott, you've really got to learn how to change. You have got to become a person who moves away from looking at people and putting stamps on people and judging and declaring and you got to become more like me. He hates partiality. He hates discrimination. It was going on in the church then. It still goes on in the church, in us. And so as James is writing this, he's talking about specific situations of, hey, this is what's going on, and paints a scenario because he knows that's what's happening. But he starts, as he's going through this, he's bringing up the law, and he brings it up a lot. And, and a lot of these people understood what he was talking about, but if you're kind of new to this thing, you're like, what is all these statements about the law? And he starts actually in chapter 1, verse 25, as he's building up to get ready for this. And he says in, in chapter, 20, or chapter 1, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, so he's describing now the law, which is the moral law of God, but he's saying the perfect law, the law of liberty, now he's giving it another adjective, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. First of all, let's define these things because they're going to come back later in chapter 2. The perfect law, um, the moral law of God, when it was given, it was given from God to Moses, written down on stone tablets, and then passed on to the priests, and then from the priests to the people. And what God said was, I have a new law, a perfect law, a more perfect law coming, and what he was saying is not, nothing is changing about it except that the location of it will be in our hearts. 
Christ comes, his death on the cross makes a way for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us who will bring us the law written on our hearts. That's the perfect law in here on our hearts. When he says the law of liberty, what is he talking about? What it's, it's the gospel in particular and what Christ does because of his death on the cross, sacrificial death and resurrection. It brings us liberty from the curse of sin, which is our bodies breaking down, this world breaking apart. We're, we're free from that. We're free from the, the judgment of sin, the guilt of sin. All these things we're free from, that's, that's the law of liberty. But not only just that, we're also free to something. We're free to live righteous lives, which we couldn't do without Christ. We're free to live holy lives, which we're free, we couldn't do without Christ. So it's, the law of liberty is freedom from and freedom towards, as James starts to talk about this. The final thing that he says, and we pick this up in chapter two, is in verse eight, when he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, well, wait a minute, we got the royal law, now we got scripture, what's the royal law? And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, you're doing well if you do this. The royal law is, in the context here, this is the only time you ever see this phrase, the royal law, in the Bible. It's the only time. Circle it if you like to circle things, underline it if you like to underline it. This is the first and last occurrence of this description. And it's tied to when Jesus was approached by some guys, you know, big fans of the law, and they're saying, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, I'll tell you the most important commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, I, and I'll give you another one. I'll give you the second one too for free. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to define, love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? It's anyone you happen to meet, which is the story of the Good Samaritan. The royal law is love. Not the commands to love, it is essentially love. You have the law of liberty, you have the perfect law, you have the royal law all pulled together into this short burst of talking about what does it mean to live as a Christ follower. And keeping that in mind, he says now... If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So he's just said, hey guys, this is what's going on in, in, your, in your family, your church family. You guys are like showing partiality and, and you're showing discrimination to the poor and the, and the rich and it's just messed up. But, you know, if you are following the royal law according to scriptures, you, you know, very rare yourself, you're doing great. Awesome. It, it's kind of this, I know there may be some of you in here, but let's just be honest. Can I get real? And then he goes on to verse 9. This is where he's getting real. He says, but if you show partiality, which they're doing, they're all known for it, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, law being the moral law of God. He says, let's just keep this real. You all are doing this. And you all are in sin. It's evil. It's wrong. And he's not done. He goes on to explain how this all works and why is it wrong. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but 
do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And James is making a case here that showing partiality or discrimination, it's clean. It's real clean. It's hard to, to, to nail down. And what he's saying is it's evil. It's sin. There's, there's no other way you can do this thing and call it good. It's, it's evil. And he goes on to say, look, it, it's evil in the sense that you break a command, you have broken the entire law. Now, that doesn't seem fair. I break one commandment, I've broken all the other ones. I mean, just showing favoritism doesn't mean I'm like an axe murderer, right? It doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm like an, an adulterer. That's what he says. And I think we could hear ourselves saying that, right? I mean, anybody else like, what well, well, slow down there. I, it's just partiality. Nobody died. And what James is doing here that's kind of unexpected, but he's giving a lesson about the unity of the law, which you would think, well, why do I need a lesson about the unity of law? Well, stay with me on this. He says here, and well, actually, he says it there. Let me quote over here in Matthew 5. He quotes, or let me quote Jesus who talks about the unity of the law, and he says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or iota, if you say, yeah, it's not Star Wars, um, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And, and that's little tiny grammar marks. And if you've ever read Hebrew or studied Hebrew, and I, you know, I only had to do a semester and I barely got through it. But there's all these little punctuations and dots everywhere. And, and Jesus is saying, not one little dot is going to pass away, meaning this whole law is unified until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Paul goes on to write in Galatians 3, and you may not know who Paul is. He's one of the main authors of the New Testament, all the, the, the letters written after Jesus died. And Paul said this, he says, um, in Galatians, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do anything everything written in the book of the law. A famous theologian, seminary prof, Douglas Moo said this in a summary of it. I like how he said it. The law is an indivisible whole. To violate one part is to be at odds with all of it. Think of it this way. The unity of the law is, is essential, one, to God's character and who he is as expressed in the law. And imagine a seamless garment and you rip, you, you, you tear it or, or you rip a, a, a place in that seamless garment. If it's a seamless garment, that means the whole thing's ripped, not just a piece of it. The whole thing's ripped. If we tear one command, we've ripped the entire law. If we break a command, and here's, here's one step even further, we receive the guilt of the entire law. Where this starts to come out, as we start 
thinking about unity and why is this relevant is this is what we, we talk about in our TTP class. That first class is folk theology. Folk is like superstitions, made up ideas, made up truths that sound right. There's always an element of truth in it, but there's no basis actually of it being true. So folk theology is this belief that we can somehow carve up the law, the moral law of God into an a la carte kind of thing. We got all kinds of pieces here and we can just kind of set it all out here and we can divide it up. So when we break the law over here, we really haven't broken everything out. We've just taken that one little thing and set it over here and it's all good. And we're not guilty for doing all of it. And so what we develop is a folk theology that says, well, I haven't broken the entire law. It's just this thing. So all I need to do is do good works, do enough good behavior here to outweigh the cosmic scale of good and evil and who gets in and who gets out. It's folk theology. It was in their church. Like they thought, this isn't that bad. And James is saying, that is messed up theology. That is a messed up belief system. It's, it's based on what? And we pass this down. How many of us have heard people talk about this? How many of us actually believed this maybe at one point? How many of us maybe even believe this right now? That we can just break a, a one little command and we're okay because we can do enough good to outweigh it. That's just not how it works. It's the entire law that is broken and that guilt is on us all. one thing to conclude out of that, second thing to conclude out of this, if it really is that significant to break one brings the guilt of the entire law, then James' point about discrimination and partiality hits home even harder. It really is that evil. It's just not, oh, I got some issues. It is evil. It's, it's wrong. It's, it's an action that breaks the royal law, the law of liberty, the perfect law, and, and it begs the question, how could someone persist in a life where, where you're violating everything about the law? All of this, the perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty. And he brings it back in, right? He, he pulls back the law of liberty. In verse 12, he says, act, speak, act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Meaning you, you just can't get away from this. Sometimes I wonder if we don't understand how evil it is. Because we, it's so hard to be in somebody else's shoes. And to be on the receiving end of it. This past week, we, my family, we watched um, The Letters. It's the movie, uh, it's a movie of um, how Mother Teresa became Mother Teresa kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, it's a great flick. Um, 
And there's this, I don't know if you know, she was in a convent, she was on a train, and felt this call of God to leave the convent, which is unheard of, and to go and minister to the poor in the streets of Calcutta, uh, the ghetto. It was off the slum areas. And, and the religious system of that time, the dominant religious system of, of, of India at that time was Hinduism, which is a caste system, and the lowest people as part of their system, theolo- theology system is the lowest people. Well, they deserve that, and they're going to be reincarnated to something better when they die, so don't care for them because that's part of their punishment. And, and you just ignore them. That, that, that's how this all works. And so nobody cares for the poor. And she's down there, and part of her ministry was England had just given, you know, the, the rights to their nation back to them, had transferred sovereignty back over right before or right as this was all happening with Mother Teresa. And so India was taking over. Their country was in turmoil. There was poverty. There was famine. There was people dying, sickness. It was really bad because it was chaotic in this transition. And there is Mother Teresa in the middle of this, and she's on the streets, and part of her ministry was actually just finding people who were dying, taking them to her place, and just caring for them while they died. And I want to show you a scene of just, you know, the movie of this happening, and that's kind of the setup here. So go ahead and play it, John. Sister, I'm afraid he's dying. I know. Little bit of God's love. That's all we can do. Suffering is to feel alone, unwanted, unloved. But he's not alone now. He's here with us. Dear Father Van Exem. I don't know if you could understand that. She said the greatest suffering is to feel alone, unwanted, and unloved. I don't, I don't talk in superlatives very often because I'm typically proven wrong. I think she's earned the right to say that greatest suffering is someone who feels alone and unwanted and unloved. That is the product of discrimination. 
partiality. If we ever thought as we show partiality or if we do or when we see it, the impact that does or has on someone, it's this declaration, you are unwanted. You are alone in this. You are unloved here. Don't come back. Don't come to me. I don't love you. I don't want you. I don't care if you're alone. And that's why James says, it is so evil. It is so evil. And what he would have us do is he starts to wind down this section. As he said, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the liberty that Christ brought us where we were free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from the bondage and all that, and free to live finally, live righteous lives, live holy lives, live for Christ, live for something that's real. He says, speak and act like you actually encountered the law of liberty. Remember what Christ did for you? He goes on to say, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. He gives this warning. You'll be judged in the way you judge others. You'll be shown mercy to the degree that you show mercy. But I can't help but get around this setup where he says, live, speak, act, as though you're judged under the law of liberty, meaning it seems to me the more we understand the law of liberty, the more inclined we will be to give mercy. The more we stare at the mercy of God, who mercy is not getting what we do deserve, and the more we stare at his mercy and who he is, this merciful God, the more inclined we will be to be merciful. We don't make vows to be merciful. We draw near to the one who is merciful. When's the last time you've sat and just contemplated the mercy of God? I'm going to invite the team to come up. They're going to sing a song that you may know, may not know. It's called Mercy. And uh, if you want to sing along, that's great. But if you want to sit there and just kind of absorb it and soak this in, that, that's the point here is don't miss this moment to understand and maybe just see it in a fresh way because it's only as we do that that we understand what James is saying here. When we draw close to God and we start to see his mercy, the longer we walk with Christ, 
the longer we walk in this law of liberty and the royal law and the law of freedom, or rather the law of liberty, royal law, um, and, and get under this idea of what he's done for us, it'll ruin us. It will. How can we not show each other mercy? And James, I love how he says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let mercy triumph in our lives. You know, I, I think sometimes we may not remember that God expects us as Christians to have this figured out. Like, the, the expectation he has on us is, hey, look, this world won't figure this out. You're the ones who are supposed to have this figured out. You're my followers. You're the one who has tasted true mercy. The onus is not on the world to, to somehow change so then we can show the mercy. The onus is on us because we've received mercy to give mercy. That, that's how this all is supposed to work together. Nowhere does James say or Christ say, wait till somebody shows you mercy before you show them mercy. Wait till somebody cleans up their act before you show them mercy. It just doesn't say that. Jesus says, look, if somebody, if somebody orders you to go a mile, show mercy. Let mercy triumph and give them two. Somebody asks for your cloak, give them your whole wardrobe. Show them mercy. Take them to Kohl's. It's in the Greek. <laughs> Let mercy triumph. God, God is over here saying, look, don't wait for people to act like Christians. <laughs> You're the Christian. You're the Christ follower. Show mercy. And that's so hard to do in our culture sometimes. Sometimes it's just really obvious, but sometimes it's like, ah, and the church is forever trying to catch up. Well, what do we do and how do we do? And I remember in the 80s when AIDS came out and it was an epidemic and everybody's freaking out and the church is freaking out and the church doesn't know what to do. And I just remember watching the church struggle. Do we show mercy or not? Because it's all tied up in all kinds of other mess. And now you talk to the church and the church is like, well, of course you show mercy. It, it, so it's AIDS, show mercy. Like, we've worked through that. But it took us how many decades to work through that? What are the issues right now that we have, the cultural issues where Christians are going, should we show mercy? Would that we get before the judgment seat of Christ and say, Jesus, we showed mercy. We weren't sure about the whole thing, but we showed mercy because you showed us mercy. I mean, Christ didn't come to us and say, oh, you are so messed up, and until you get it all organized and figured out, I'm not going to show you mercy. He said, no, I came, and I know what's going to happen. I know how this looks from the world's view. You all are going to take advantage of me, and that's how this works. Have some mercy. Have some more mercy. What if our church becomes famous, like Mother Teresa, for showing mercy? It was interesting watching the stats at the end of this movie because 
In a hundred years, the Catholic Church had never done what they did for Mother Teresa. In over a hundred years, and they keep records and all this stuff. What she asked for, and they ended up starting a church, they hadn't done that in over a hundred years the way they did it with Mother Teresa. Like, everything was against her, and yet God puts this vision on her to go and to show mercy to the, the people in Calcutta in the slums. And it says that at the, at the end of the movie, it started talking about the Catholic Church in, in other ways was in all this decline, and yet all these people, even after Mother Teresa died, I mean, all these people started following her while she's living, and then even after she dies, it keeps growing. The world is looking. It's like this, this cup of fresh water like I've never had mercy before. I can't imagine what that's like. And we're wringing our hands over whether we should show mercy or not. And, and, and God's saying, let mercy triumph over judgment. And if you're confused, you can come to him on judgment day and say, well, you, you told me mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going for mercy. Give me some mercy. And God's going to say, you're right, I did. And, and it's crazy because mercy triumphs over judgment. You're saying, oh, Scott, you're getting away from the law. I'm like, James is talking about the law all over the place in here. He's way comfortable with it. He's all over it. Royal law, the law of liberty, right? He's not moving away from it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I wonder what it would be like to be in front of Christ and to have him say, in your life, Scott, or in your life, or in Freshwater's life as a church, mercy triumph. Way to go. I say this and I just feel the burden of this because I've seen this in the church where we're always like it's somebody else's fault or it's look at them. We got excuses why we withhold mercy. There's no excuse. And, it's, and the worst excuse is possible is well, they're not starting it and they're not doing it to us so why don't, we don't have to and it's like, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's complex, and I don't get it all. All I know is mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Would you draw us uh, into your presence where there is mercy? Remind us again, Lord, what you have not given us that we did deserve. And would you send us out as people of mercy, people that would be able to see others and say, you are loved and you are wanted and you are not alone.
Amen. At our church, we uh, have time for prayer at the end of a service. Um, and if God is doing things in you and there's things going on in your life and you want prayer for and it has nothing to do with anything here or everything to do with what happened this morning, uh, it doesn't matter which way it goes. We'd love to invite you to come forward for prayer here at the end uh, when, I, when we're dismissed and, uh, and pray for you because uh, we see God do things that, well, we can't do. When we pray, God works and God moves. So if you need prayer, uh, please come forward. Um, we have people who would love to do that this morning. So may God bless you all. And may mercy triumph in our lives this week. We'll see you next week.